Welcome to No Ordinary, ordinary women, women, the podcast where two ordinary broads chat about extraordinary women, the good, the bad, and the, the bad shit shit crazy. crazy. Hi, Rose. Hey. I'm Lynn. You're like insistent that we're going to do I that. I always forget to do it. I am Lynn. Lynn really wants us to say our names. I do. We need to introduce ourselves. No. Let's keep on guessing. Who's who? I am Lynn. This is Henry. Who's? And you're Henry, since you're going to keep on guessing. Who's Henry? You. I'm Henry VIII. Henry VIII. Oh, great. <laughs> great. You're going to behead me before the podcast is over? I kind of feel like it sometimes. Well, you know, get in line, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) So today's cocktail is a little bit of my creation. Oh, I forgot. I didn't do the right recipe. Jesus Christ. Every week. God damn it. With this. First she forgets the coffee and the coffee (sighs) drink. No, I have the ingredient. I just didn't put it on the, I didn't put it on the thing correctly. God damn it. Anyway. Should I fix it now? I guess. I'll pause this. Okay. So the cock... Oh. (laughs) Why'd you stop me when I said cock? The cocktail of the night (laughs) is... I like to hear you say it. I named it the honey bow. Boo. Boo. (laughs) Honey bow? The honey boo. (laughs) That's disgusting. The honey bow? Yeah. Bow? Like B-O-W-E-L? No, I said bow. Like B-O-W. Or... Yeah. B-O-U. Bow. What? What is that? Because I didn't want to spell the whole word bourbon, so I just called it the honey bow. Like bourbon, B-O-U. That's stupid. (gasps) I'm leaving. (laughs) Anyway, it was um, our yummy, yummy Ragged Branch bourbon with a half a teaspoon of honey and like an ounce of apple cider. And then I shook it over ice in a shake a shake a shake and then I strained it into a glass with ice and topped it with some ginger ale. It's really good. It is yummy. It's nice and warm. I love and toasty. the bourbon. Yeah. Mmm. Mmm. Bourbon. Bourbon is just delicious. In it the is. Winter. It's so well, good. It's delicious any time of the year, but mostly in the winter. So, how was your week, Rose? It was good, Lynn. It was good. It's been a long week. It's been a long month. January is dragging. Wait, we didn't even work on Monday, and it's still been a long week. <laughs> and I work from home on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, I feel and like And I went week, in late today. <laughs> I feel like it's this week is just like, oh, my God, can we please? And it's... Yeah, really January just, and February always just drag. And we've had... It's been cold here. Yeah, like, I think maybe that's why it's been even worse. Yeah, yeah it's been cold. It's, it's been like the other... Yesterday... Uh, yeah, yesterday I went to the gym at 7 in the morning, and it was 18 degrees. It's oh my never God. that cold here. No. <laughs> like, it's oh where you can't even, like, you don't even want to walk outside. Yeah. Walking into work is, like, my I poor, just want to call in. Yeah, and my poor dog is, like, not, I haven't really taken her on many walks because we usually do two walks a day at least. And she's just too little. Yeah. It's she so freezes to death. Yeah. So we did do a walk today. It was the first time in several days that we've taken, like, a full walk. Usually I... I'm just like walking to the end of the street and back, but I did the whole, Good the job. whole shabang a wang. I'm proud of you. Thanks. I'm proud Thanks. Of you. So, Rose, you want to hear who I'm ta- talking about today? Mm, I guess so. You sure? Yes. You sure? Why don't I'm you in beg? a weird mood today. I'm having like I had so much trouble concentrating at work. Oh. I felt like I got lots of energy, like I need to go on a run or something. 
I have lots of energy. Like, I need to just sit in front of the TV and do nothing. <laughs> no, I've been working on this, like, every day since Sunday. So I haven't been able to watch any good TV or anything. I am so ready to lay on the couch, not have a laptop in my lap or an iPad or whatever, and just watch some mind-melting TV. Um, I've been watching um, The Gilded Age, and I really like it. What's that? It's it's the one that talks about the Vanderbilts and the Astors. Oh, okay. yeah, it's very cool. But it doesn't. They don't call her Vanderbilt. They call her Miss Russell. You need to watch Saltburn. Oh, I do need to. I started watching that and I couldn't get into it. I don't know why. It's so fucking weird. Is it a movie? So weird. Yeah, it's a movie. Yeah, I'm not gonna watch it tonight. It'll be like too late. it made me uncomfortable. Like I wanted to like. Oh, great! So maybe can wa- wash maybe... myself. Wash yourself. Yeah, like take a shower after you know. Well, what'd you do during it? Nothing. It was what he was doing that was oh. making me uncomfortable. I started watching it, and I was like, I can't get... I, I was, like, not in the mood. I just yeah. was, like, not catching on. So I was like, I'll watch it another day. So... Yeah, you need no. to watch it. It's good. And I can't watch Alone right now because I'm having a hard time with meat because I watched You Are What You Eat on Netflix, and it's really shook me up. And I haven't been eating meat anyway, like, that much. I mean, I've had some here and there, but I really haven't been... I haven't been cooking any meat since before Christmas, like... Since before, actually before Thanksgiving, now that I think about it, I haven't cooked any meat at all. I'm sorry. Am I boring you? (laughs) I'm sorry. Can I have that drink back? No, I'm just disappointed in you that you're not eating meat. Well, after you watch that show, it's really hard. What about bacon, Lynn? How do you think bacon feels? I don't know. I looked at bacon. It didn't even look (gasps) good to me. I know. Get out. I'm telling you, it's so weird. I mean, I, girl, I love bacon. But I just looked at, this was before I even watched that show. And I'm like, just talking about it, it's making my mouth like. It's making my mouth water. <laughs> well, mine, it's, my, it's making me like kind of like salivate, like gaggy. So I don't know. I I just, I go through this phase. But bacon is so good. How could you not like it? Well, I go through this phase every couple of years with chicken. I just can't eat chicken Sometimes for like a Sometimes chicken whole year. is gross to me. Sometimes you get a chicken breast and it's like a little too thick. And uh, it's like a little. Oh, ch- yeah. Oh, God. That's so much. Like, yeah. Oh, God. It just gave me the chills. Yeah. Like a little gamey or something. Yeah. And so I can't eat. I, and then I'll go like a whole year without eating chicken. Jeez. But I don't. I just don't feel like eating meat right now. I don't know what's what do wrong you eat? with me. I don't know what I would eat if I didn't eat meat. I eat tofu and beans. And I think I eat meat for, at every meal. Well, think how much money you'll save if you stop eating meat. What would I feed my family? Beans and rice. None of them like beans. I'm the only one in my family who likes so beans. so weird. So when you make chili, do you just not put beans in it? I put one can of beans and then Chris will sit there and pick them out. <gasps> that is so funny. Yeah. He picks them out. He picks them out. Does Joseph like beans? No, he will pick any. I mean, he doesn't eat chili when we eat chili, but if I make something with beans, he will sit there and pick them out. So one time I made, um, you know, sweet, savory stuff. I made her, she has like a taco bake or something, and it has refried beans on the bottom. Uh-huh. And so I like snuck in a can and put it on the bottom. And Joseph was like, Does this have beans in it? And I was like, No, it doesn't have beans. Oh my God. <laughs> and then they started eating it, and they're like, there's definitely beans in here. <laughs> so you should just take your chili and um, puree the beans. I know, but I like the like I, I like it to be beans. like a bean. I love. I beans. love like, beans too. Nobody I, else likes them. I can eat like a four bean chili without any meat in it at all. But I also love like chili. I love Impossible Burger meat, like the and then the the Beyond Meat Burger. Yeah, I love that stuff. 
Yeah, I don't know. About I just you. don't know. I just can't do it right now. And that show really kind of pushed me. I mean, it's pushing me to not even eat dairy, which is weird for me because I love. What are you going to eat? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just weird. Don't out. do that. I'm weirded out by the whole show. I can't. It's like disgusting. You're not going to eat cheese. Okay. You know what? When we go on our girls trip, I'm going to bring Brie and I'm going to be like, you can't have any. I bet I'll still eat it. <laughs> I bet you will. There's no law. I can do whatever I want. I'm a grown woman. I'll eat me some Brie. Oh, I know. It's so good. Oh, fucking Brie. But like, you're talking like eggs? I don't know. Like you can't be turned off of cheese. I know. I'm, I don't know. But they say that in that show, they said that that's the one thing that people have the hardest time with when they go vegan is cheese. But yeah. the vegan cheeses aren't bad, really. They've actually gotten much better. Yeah, but so. you can't make vegan brie. Yeah, probably not. I mean, it would not. I mean, brie is special. It would yeah. not taste good. I don't know. We'll see. Taking it slow. But anyway, yeah, I don't even know how we got on that topic. But anyway, so, <laughs> yeah. So uh, today I'm going to tell you bitches about, when I say you bitches, I mean Rose. Um, I'm just one bitch. A woman. Well, your other personalities. Good job. You're following the rules. Your other personalities. <laughs> They're not listening, Lynn. A woman. It's just one person here. That's true. <laughs> Named Belva Lockwood. So before I start the story, I want to say that I'm infuriated that we did not learn about her in school. Now, that being said, it's very possible they did a whole, you know, whole day. You probably took a whole class on her. And I probably slept through the whole thing. <laughs> school. You didn't come to school that day. But no, no, I mean, I've never even heard of her. And I'm so many people. I I've talk- never heard of her either. Yeah. So she is pretty freaking cool and should 100 percent have been in the history books. Absolutely. But did you, she might be, Lynn. You probably just didn't read them. No, she's not in the history And books. I didn't read them, so I can't say if she was or not. Well, no, she's, I don't think she is. I Why mean, are you couple... tapping your microphone? I'm not. What did you just do? I went like this. No, you went like this. Oh, I went like this. No, like you. my chin. Oh, maybe just from here it looks like you touched yeah. it. And my microphone's moving, though. Are you shaking your leg or something? Yeah. Can you fucking hold still? <laughs> God damn I always it. We're do. trying to be professional here. <laughs> Hold on. Let me move so I don't, I'm not shaking the whole oh fucking God. table. Well, it's not my fault. This table is awful. Well, you bought, bought this it. Piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> we, did, we did make an improvement to the studio today. I put up a little shelf. <laughs> I put up a little shelf with a little wine rack on it. It's kind of cute. A little, I'm not wine rack, but a little glass rack. And so we can not have our glasses in an old box on the floor. Yeah. We're getting pro fesh here. I'm really done with my drink. I know, I'm almost done with mine. Hurry up and Let's tell your story. Stop up. Let's stop up. Hurry up and tell your story, quick. Okay. There once was a woman. The end. Let's drink more. <laughs> <laughs> more, more. Sorry. Okay, go. Anyway. Go. Tell us about okay. Belva. So when women started entering the legal field in the years immediately following the Civil War, only a few determined candidates were able to overcome societal restrictions that made it impossible for them to compete. Oh, Sorry them to complete their legal education or become members of the bar. Men continue to be the authority of law, Rose. Obviously. And we as women need to bow down to these men. They still they still are to this day. They're allowed to grab our peas, but they are not, we are not allowed. Our peas? I don't have a penis. The other word. Your vajay. Your vagine. 
My vagina. Your vagina. Your <laughs> my vagina. I think Caitlin. Caitlin. Vagina. <laughs> my vagina. My vagina. Lily calls her. We call it the your hoo ha, and yeah. Lily calls it her hee haw. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I die every time. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the majority of Americans, working in a career unsexed or degraded women. What unsexed? Unsexed. So, if you if a woman was in a career. They weren't a woman anymore. They were just, they were like asexual, you know what I mean? Um, It was believed that the strain of mental exercise was unsuitable for female brains. Well, it is. (laughs) I'd like to go back to that belief, please. Can we get back to that, please? I need to stay home. (laughs) Only the most brave dared to pursue their professional goals because of the extreme hatred toward them. The bravest one was probably Belva... A. Lockwood. Okay. So why is she not in the history books, Rose? Anyway. Because she's a woman. Because she's a woman. Belva Lockwood. Sorry. You know what this reminds me of? I'm listening to um, a book, Lessons in Chemistry. Um, Why? No, it's a good, it's like a a, a fiction book. Oh. (laughs) I was like... Where is Rose? What have you done with her? <laughs> yeah. I'm reading lessons I'm reading in chemistry. Like, what are you trying to like help Joseph? No, no, no. It's about a woman um, who's a uh, um, scientist, but oh. like back in the day, and and all the oh my god, the sex. Um, she gets she gets pregnant out of wedlock. Oh god. Um, and the sexism is like, I want to like go into the book and like beat the shit out of some people. I'm I'm reading a book right now called uh, The Maid. It is Andrew gave it to me. It's so good. You'll have to get it after me. It's really, really good. It's about a girl who's a maid in like a five star, like fancy hotel, and she's definitely. I I I have to assume on the spectrum, but it's it's very it's it's funny and it's I like I can't wait to go to bed and read it. It's every night. It's really good. Well, you can't wait to go to bed anyway. So I know (laughs) that's my favorite thing to do. You know what? That was the chair. (laughs) <laughs> sure. <laughs> Once you find something that helps you to sleep, you cannot wait to go to bed. Like when you're like when I don't sleep well, like a gummy, I dread going to bed because it's. I oh, start I know. Anxious. Yeah, I get anxious too. Like before or when I go to bed. you're having bad dreams. Yeah, and I lay in bed and I'm like the anxiety yeah. hits me and I I know that I know other people this happens to. It's like I get there and I'm like tired and as soon as I lay in the bed, like my everything starts. You're like racing. I'm not going to be able to sleep. Yeah. So when you find something that helps you sleep like a gummy i have i sleep so freaking hard now it's amazing i can't wait to go to bed really i'm so excited i I sleep so hard i sleep so i sleep hard without a gummy but um you know speaking of books i just read the best book it was called the housemaid by frida something that's so weird that you just finished reading the house i I know that's why i thought you were reading the same book when you said that Oh, my God. It was insane. Is it like, did you read it? Did you do? It's like a thriller. Did you do it on? Um... On my Kindle. Oh, okay. So I'm, and then I'm I'm reading um, another one of her books. It's called, oh, my God, I have no idea what it's called. When I have a book on my Kindle, I never know the name of it because I never <laughs> look at the, I never look at the cover. Yeah. This one, the only reason I know the name is because I have the physical book and I'm reading it, well, I'm, which I hate because I'm wearing yeah. my glasses oh, at yeah, night and hard. I have to like have the light on and yeah. everything, whereas with the Kindle. That's why it's really hard for me to read like actual books. Yeah. Um, but I'm reading the sec- another one of hers and it's like this woman 
she's like a, a resident. She's going to be a doctor. And she has to go stay in a psychiatric unit for one night to do like a overnight. Kind of like your house. <laughs> it is a lot like that. <laughs> anyway, it's so freaky. I can't read it at, like at like right before I go to Ooh. bed. I have to read it any other time of day when I can like watch something and like Wait. cleanse my mind. So that's that's the book you're reading now. So I'm reading that one now, and I'm reading I'm listening oh. to lessons in chemistry. Oh. I, just, I love listening to books on tape, but then I get way behind on my podcasts. One books on tape. How old are you? I, I, very old. Books on eight track. Also, and, I want to point out that our um, for pod our podcast thing on our calendar, it says podcast. <laughs> what does, what it, does say? it say? Did I mess up the spelling? <laughs> no, it just says something that's very old school, like um, podcast taping. <laughs> taping. <laughs> Probably that was, I was me. Like, I said the invite. To, she needs to change that <laughs> podcast taping. I don't know, y'all. I mean, I grew up. We had eight tracks when I. Grew I know. Up. It's okay. I forget so. that. Anyway, so, yeah, so I'm like, I hate reading. I love reading, but this book, because I have to have my glasses on and the light on. Yeah, that's that's rough. It's hard, so. Do you like like to read thrillers? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. I'll read that, yeah. Those those two, or the the housemaid was, like, amazing. Like, they need to make that into a movie. It's so good. Girl, nothing's keeping me awake with those gummies. Nothing. I mean, to get sleep like that, it's, first of all, it's so good for your body to get a good sleep like that. And it's good for if you're trying to lose weight, if you're not sleeping. And I just was not sleeping for the longest time. I wonder why. I don't know. But, man, I love it. I'm like, I'm not fucking with anything. Yeah. I find I don't sleep well if I don't exercise. Yeah. Well, if I, like, like um, uh, on a Saturday, sometimes I'll get up and be like, oh, I don't do anything. And I end up, like, watching TV until yeah, 2 o'clock. Yeah, just being lazy all and, like, day. Those are the nights I don't sleep yeah, well. Yeah, that's because really I'm like, tough. oh, God, I, did, I exerted no energy. So, all right. So, Belva Lockwood lacked social status, riches, and the prospect of a good education from birth. But in the end, she would take her law degree directly from the President Rose and be the first female member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar and lead the late 19th century women's suffrage movement. Yeah, she was badass. So, Belva... Belva was born October 24th, 1830, the second of five children. She was born in the Niagara County hamlet of Royalton, New York. Her parents were farmers Louis J. and Hannah Bennett. Raised in a Christian family, she knew growing up, I'm sorry, she grew up taking the Bible literally. She was quoted as saying, I suppose faith was faith only was necessary to the reenactment of the miracles of Scripture. Belva, at age 10, decided to put a theory to test by walking on water at the mill pond near her family's house. But she just got her skirts and undergarments all wet. <laughs> I mean, back then, God was everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody believed in God. Um, underrated, she, she decided to attempt to resurrect the dead. I'm sorry. I said underrated. Undeterred. I, I was like, What? <laughs> Oh my God! I feel like we do so much better. I was like, that is kind of underrated. Yeah, if we were, I feel like we do so much better recorded first thing in the morning instead of after my brain is fried from work because my brain is fried from work. And I totally make that kind of mistake because you're like, I'm just tired. My eyes are tired. I'm having a. It's the first alcohol I've had since last Thursday. By the way, first of all, you had Bailey's last night. I had like a half of a shot, not even a half of a shot. Well, it was just a splash in my 
That's but, still you know a lie. I mean? It's the first cocktail still I've had. It's still a lie. Okay, I lied. I lied. It's not the first cock you've had, It's the had, light though. Baileys. I put a little in my hot chocolate because I was freezing and I couldn't get warm. And I don't have a sexy husband like you do. <laughs> do I? <laughs> what's what's he supposed to do? just drove off the road. <laughs> what's he got to do with anything? Did, did, he, did he tell you he sent me a picture of his penis? Oh, yeah, he did tell me. He yeah. sent me one, too. It was... I was like, oh, disturbing. oh. I was like, oh, my God. Chris, and I opened I it when I was getting my hair done. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Your hairdresser's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, excuse myself. You can. <laughs> Your hairdresser's like, oh. It wasn't really a picture of his penis. It was like a to, finger you... that was supposed to look like a penis. I know. Lynn got very excited. Chris told me all about it. I was like, I love this. He goes, I knew you would. I could see him just like gritting. So Lynn. Lynn. Chris was telling me about it last night, I think, at some time. And, and he, he was like, Joseph was in the room, so we were trying not to, you know, say penis. <laughs> because Joseph doesn't know what that is. <laughs> so he was like, I sent Lynn that picture and I was like, oh, um, and she and he said, she said, she said, oh, my God, I was like. I was freaking out. I was out. cringing. Yeah. I, and like, like, oh my God, what is he doing? Like, I was like, Because ah! you thought he accidentally sent you a picture of his penis I or something? Know. I looked at it. I was like, ah! And then I was like, oh, that's a finger. And I'm like, and I didn't understand what he was saying. I thought you meant like, I don't, I don't know. And then I was like, oh, well, she actually thought like you sent, accidentally sent her a picture of your penis or were sending her a picture uh-huh. of your penis. Like, hey, Lynn. And oh um, he was like, yeah, I was like, oh, my God, that's so funny. And Joseph was OK with this conversation? He didn't say anything. I, I didn't. We didn't say penis. I said he, he th- she thought you were sending a, her a picture of yours. I mean, I, I assume he knew what we were talking about. Well. We just didn't say the word penis. Oh, how was the party? What party? Joseph went to his first high school oh, party. Oh, yeah. So, y'all, fine. Joseph went to a high school party. Rose did not call to make sure there were any parents there. She didn't go and do a drive-by while he was there. <laughs> she didn't do anything. I offered to go by there and bring a game, some, like, rummy cube or something, or a puzzle, and, like, drop in and be like, hey, just hey, a puzzle. Rose said no. I was like, are you tracking him? Are you going? I I was so nervous for him. I did track him. The whole, I tracked him until I went to bed at night. I would have driven by, like, four times. I mean, I, I know he's, as he was going, as he was, like, leaving, I was like, okay, Joseph, you know, if if you do drink, like, don't drink, but if you do drink, call me and I will call me your dad and we will come pick you up and we won't ask any questions. Like, it'll be a free pass. I'm going to be fucking pissed. But but I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> but I was like, but don't drink and don't do any drugs. He was like, Mom, I don't drink. He's like, I'm not going to drink. I don't drink. And I was like, so he left. Um, Chris gave him the same talk. <laughs> he left. And then a little while later, I'm like, Chris, I told him don't drink or do drugs. And he said, I don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> is he doing drugs he's smoking the pot smoking that crazy pot <laughs> Rose, no. he was doing mushrooms that's why so I, I told him last night i was like well the other night when i was asking him about the party i was like you know i noticed when i said don't drink or do drugs you just responded that you don't drink so are you doing drugs <laughs> He's like, yeah, mom, I am. You want some? <laughs> That's actually what he said. <laughs> <laughs> when my uh, when my stepkids were there, I found some pot in my stepson's room, and I took it. And then I went to a party and smoked it with my friends. 
Yeah. I didn't like at that time. I was n- I was definitely not like smoking or anything like that. But I was like I was working in a restaurant and I happened to be invited to a party like the next week. And you I was know, like, sweet. They all and smoke. Yeah. And they were like, sweet, you have weed. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Found it in my stepson's drawer. Pretty, pretty funny. So That's funny. Okay. Okay. So undeterred, she decided to attempt to resurrect the dead. She went to a nearby cemetery where a neighbor's child had just been buried. Despite her best efforts, Belva was unable to bring the deceased infant back to life. <gasps> this is why God is a bad thing, because people shouldn't believe that they can do this stuff. Anyway, I mean, that God's not sad. a bad thing, but... <laughs> this is why God's a bad thing. <laughs> He's not a bad thing, but... She attempted a third miracle, Rose, convinced that the issue rested on her concentration rather than the idea of her that her faith would provide her the extraordinary talents. Recalling the Bible text stating that faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. She was determined that if an adult believer could move a mountain, she, a kid, could presumably move a hill. She selected a small hill and concentrated with all of her power. But the hill did not move. See, and that's why... That's why she's not in the history books. Yeah. So after this third failed attempt... Bel- attempt. Belva gave up trying to recreate biblical miracles, but she did not lose her faith in God, Rose. She grew up imagining herself as a professional woman from the middle class. By age 14, she was teaching at the local elementary school. In 1848, when she was 18, she married Uriah McNall, a local farmer. Her aunt's house is where she spent a lot of her childhood, and it still stands at 5070 Griswold Street, Niagara County, uh, Royalton, New York. So she married him, and he was a 22-year-old farmer and sawmill worker. A few years later, Uriah caught his right foot in some machinery at the sawmill and was severely injured. He spent two years. I bet OSHA was never in that place. Why do you do that? See, that's why they have OSHA now. Yeah. That's not good. He spent two years as an invalid and died of consumption in the spring of 1853. So, <laughs> the word invalid, I was reading this before, and I was like, he, as an invalid. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, it's an invalid. And then, so, consumption is just like alcohol? I don't know. But another thing said he d- died of TB. So, oh. who knows? But is consumption alcohol? I assume. So Belva was now a 22-year-old widow with a toddler. They had had a daughter named Laura, L-U-R-A, which is kind of interesting. Left with no money, Belva quickly realized she needed a better education to support herself and her daughter. She was determined and persuaded. She was determined and persuaded the administration at Genesee College in Lima, New York, to admit her. She was a badass, confident woman, and she was taking no from nobody. She boldly embraced principles in favor of equality, equal opportunity for women, and insisted on having the freedom to demonstrate her own abilities. Her plan was not well received by many of her friends and colleagues. Most women did not seek higher education, and it was especially unusual for a widow to do so. So she just just like lay home and cry. Leaving Laura with her parents, who ended up moving to Illinois, Belva moved 60 miles away to attend Genesee Wesleyan Seminary and then Genesee College. She graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in 1857. So its seminary is now like a 
like where priests go and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. that. But back then, it was a female like school. It was during her study at Gen- studies at Genesee College that Belva first became attracted to the law. But the school had no law department. Since a local law professor was offering private classes, she became one of his students. It made her hungry to learn more. Belva graduated with honors in 1857, retrieved her daughter, and soon became the headmistress of Lockport Union School. She supervised three teachers, handled discipline, and taught classes including rhetoric, botany, and higher math. But though the school board knew Belva was a widow with a child to support, she was paid $400 annually, while the male teacher she managed made $600. And male administrators made even more. What? So the teachers that were below her made more money than her. This infuriates me. And she was like the principal? She was, yeah, she was the... She was the, the um, headmistress. Yeah. yeah, like the like the That's dean. Fucked up. She had been encountering gender pay inequality since she started teaching at age fourteen and discovered that male teachers were being paid twice her salary for the same work. And indignity not to be tamely born, as she later said. The school board <laughs> rebuffed fourteen year old Belva's complaint and twenty six year old Belva faced the same dismissive attitude. Oh, she was like, 26-year-old no Belva isn't taking it. Yeah. Belva's educational philosophy was gradually changing, particularly after, she, particularly after she met women's rights activist Susan B. Anthony. Isn't that cool? She agreed with many... She was in the history books. She agreed with many of Anthony's yeah. ideas about society's restrictions on women. Anthony was concerned about the limited education girls received. Courses in most girls' schools chiefly prepared female students for domestic life and possibly for temporary work as teachers. Um, Anthony spoke about how young when young women ought to be given more options, including preparation for careers in the business world where the, where the pay was better. Belva was encouraged to make changes at her school. She expanded the curriculum and added courses typical to those which young men took, such as public speaking, botany, and gymnastics. Her interest in studying law grew, and in 1866, she moved to Washington, D.C., as she believed it was the center of power of the United States and would provide good opportunities to advance in the legal profession. She wanted to enter the consular service, and during the administration of President Andrew Johnson, she applied for a position as a consular office officer in Ghent, Belgium, an unheard of position for a woman. Belva prepared dutifully for the civil service exam, refreshing her German and studying international law, but the State Department never replied to her application. Oh, of course. Because she was probably the only woman who I'm sure. applied. In 1881, she requested that President Garfield appoint her the head of U.S. diplomatic mission in Brazil, arguing that her her uh, faculty with international law made her an appropriate choice, but her petition was ignored again. What year was that? 1881? 1881. Okay. This was A few, few years later, she pushed President Grover Cleveland to appoint her minis- minister of Turkey, She's like, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to, you know, if, if, you, if at first you don't succeed. Yeah, no shit. A few years later, she pushed President Grover Cleveland to appoint her minister of Turkey. Cleveland insisted, I'm sorry. <laughs> Cleveland instead selected a man rumored to be a womanizer. Oh. In response, Belva sent the president a bitter letter, noting sarcastically, the selection of S.S. Cox could not have been 
It <laughs> could have been approved, could not have been a, improved upon. I don't know why I can't So his name today. was S.S. Cox? Isn't that funny? And he was a womanizer? And he was a womanizer. I mean, I guess he had to be with that name. Yeah. The only danger is that he will attempt to suppress polygamy in that country by marrying all the women himself. <laughs> she said that? Yes. That was <laughs> her quoted from her. In 1868, she, at the age of 37, met Ezekiel Lockwood. He was 66 years old. Wow. Yeah, he's pretty old. How old uh, was she? She was 37. He was 29 years her senior, and whom she married a year later, Reverend Ezekiel Lockwood, a war veteran, Baptist minister, and practicing dentist. They had a daughter named Jessie who died before her second birthday. Oh, no. Um, Ezekiel was a big supporter of hers and encouraged encouraged her desire to study law. She earned a Master of Arts from Syracuse University in 1871. Not only did Reverend Lockwood have a progressive have progressive ideas about women's roles in society, he helped raise Belva's daughter daughter Laura from her first marriage. Belva refused to be dependent on anybody, including other women. She was also unafraid to take against to take against the patriarch patriarchal. I said that right, right? Patriarchal establishment, which prevented women from advancing in their careers in voting. After being refused admission to several law schools over concerns that she would be a distraction to the male students, of of course, course. Belva and several other women were admitted to the National University Law School, which is now the George Washington University Law School. Oh, that's where my mom went. Your mom went to George Washington? Yeah, the law school. What? <laughs> Your mom kidding. went to law school? <laughs> no. Oh. I can't believe she went to George Washington. Did she she did it. Oh. I was just joking. <laughs> Damn it. You did that to me last week, so I thought I'd get you back. Okay. <laughs> At the time, National University was a fairly young school, and they needed enrollment numbers, so they allowed women to enroll. So um, she, the very first day of classes... Um, the men freaked out when the women walked in the room. Yeah, of course. And they were like, we can't do this. It's not going to happen. So they ended up making the women go into another classroom to learn. Oh, my so they God. distract the men. It's, it's so, so stupid. The, so what happened was she completed all of her coursework in May of 1883, but the school wouldn't grant her and the other women their diplomas. They were like, yeah, you didn't do the work that the men did, so you don't deserve a diploma. Yeah, because you wouldn't give it to us. Well, no, but they did faces. do all the same work. It was just in a different classroom. So they're like, how do we know you learned it? So without a diploma, Belva could not gain admi- uh. admittance to the District of Columbia Bar, which – so if you graduated from the National University, you automatically at this time were admitted to the bar in D.C. Okay. Which is like sweet. So that's why they wouldn't give her a diploma because they're like, oh, Assholes. no, you can't. Yeah. She jumped through many hoops to try and obtain her g- degree. She tried over and over again. She was like, I'll take any test you want. To prove that I have the knowledge they have. And there was her and a bunch of women trying to do this. And a lot of the women were, like, dropping out, like, one by one. And she was not. She was like, no. She was digging her heels in. She wasn't having any luck. She wrote to President Ulysses S. Grant, appealing to him as a president and ex officio of the National University Law School. And in September 1873, she received her diploma and was admitted to the District of Columbia Bar. Oh, good for her. So it's funny because she... um, she wrote him a letter and she was like, you know, I want my fucking diploma. Yeah. And he never responded to anything, but she was just suddenly sent her diploma. Go figure. Well, good. At least yeah. he did something about it. 
Or somebody did something. Exactly. After the U.S. Supreme Court's justices denied her admission to the bar three years later in 1876, citing the rule that no... I'm sorry. None but men are permitted to practice before us as attorneys and counselors. She went she went it alone and persuaded Congress to pass an act to relieve certain legal disabilities of women, a task that a reporter said required an unconsiderable deal of lobbying. Velva concurred, noting afterwards that nothing was too daring for me to attempt. In order to succeed, her longtime supporter Washington lawyer Albert G. Riddle moved for her admission to the Supreme Court bar on May 3rd, 1879, and she was sworn in to the ceremony amid a batting of breath and craning of necks. It's so weird. Like Everyone's like, what is going on? Why were men, why was it like that? Like, and it's still like that. Like men, are, I mean, it's not as obviously as bad, but it's still Rose- like... Women are supposed to be seen and not heard, Rose. Did you not? Nobody but told like, you that? But, like, why? Like, when did that start? Like, what it's What that started that? I know, but what? Who was it? Adam? It was a white man that started it. Adam. Probably Adam, yeah. That's he was where it like, started. Eve, get in the kitchen. Yeah. You can't have a fucking apple. Not until I say so. <laughs> <laughs> I grew the fucking apples. And now that you ate the apple, you'll be punished for the rest of your yeah. life. <laughs> and there we are. And there, and now we're, the, and yeah, now we're here. Yeah. Now we're yeah. here. <laughs> Being punished. <Yes>. So. <laughs> so after a year, she argued Kaiser versus Stickney before the high court, the first woman lawyer to do so. Belva made headlines once more in 1884 when she launched the first comprehensive campaign for the U.S. presidency. Wow. So she was the first. So there was a woman, and I meant to look her up and I forgot, who absolutely, who like threw her ad in for the presidency at some point. But she ended up not being old enough, so she couldn't actually Wait, run. I feel like you've done, like, two stories before where you said that it was the first woman to run for president. Uh-oh. I think you have. I'm going to Google. Hold on. Hmm? Hold on. I'm going to check my Google machine. There's a woman who is noted as the first woman to run for president, but she ended up not running because she wasn't old enough. Victoria Woodhull. Yeah, she was the one who tried to run, and she ended up not being able to run because her um, because she wasn't old enough. Her third party candidacy astonished the country and upset other suffrage le- suffrage leaders, some of whom thought her a Barnum. Do you know what a Barnum is? Barnum Bailey. <laughs> Exactly. I was like, what is a Barnum? I assumed it was basically a circus. Oh, is it really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so funny. like if you call someone a Barnum, it's like, oh, you're just like starting a circus. Oh, wow. She felt that running for president, women would be able to vote. She felt that by running for president, women would be able to vote and be welcomed to the political community. She informed reporters that she was unable to vote, but nothing in the Constitution stopped men from casting ballots for her. She couldn't even vote, but she was running for president, which I think is amazing. That's crazy, yeah. yeah. On a wide range of poli- um, policy issues such as foreign affairs, tariffs, equal po- equal political rights, civil service reform, judicial appointments, Native Americans, protection of public lands, temperance. Te- I was like, what is temperance? Temperance is like abstinence or sobriety. 
pensions and the federalization of society, she presented a 12-point plat- platform, which was later refined and presented as a 15 as 15 positions. She was like running with all those things. I'm like, could she run now? So she please? wanted abstinence. No, she like the the problems they were having with like alcohol and stuff like. Oh, that. okay. The story of a female contender was widely praised by both local and national newspapers. Belva and Green and the Greenback Party, I remember learning about them in school, candidate Ben Butler were featured on the cover of Puck, which was a widely read weekly American magazine of political satire and other humor, published in English and German editions in the 19th and 20th century. Belva arranged to deliver paid speeches in order to raise money for her campaign. She even attempted to set up a debate between Grover Cleveland and James Blaine, the respective candidates for the Democrat and Republican parties. So funny. She's like, I'll organize everything. I got it. I got it, everybody. <laughs> Though she a typical received, woman. You yeah, know? right? She's like, oh, nobody's going to do anything. I got yeah, it. Right. Just get the fuck out of my way. <laughs> Though she received less than 5,000 votes, she remained undeterred. In 1888, she declared to reporters during her second presidency campaign, men always say, let's see what you can do. We won't go somewhere if we merely talk about things without ever working. Following the election, she stated in a conversation with British journalists that her second poor showing could be attributed to men who cling to old ideas developed in the days of chivalry and rich kept women. Oh, I want to be a kept woman. Yeah. But she remained optimistic, saying, after all, equality of rights and privileges is but but simple justice. Belva was very driven and had the backing of her husband, Ezekiel, who agreed with her ambition to to become successful in the world. Law was a man's game, which she enjoyed, and she thought it could be a stepping stone to greatness. Belva began practicing law out of her house even before she was accepted into the bar in Washington, D.C. So she was allowed to do, like, just, like, basic small criminal cases and, like, stuff okay, like that yeah. at first. She initially corabor- collaborated with Ezekiel. He was selling himself as a notary public, a pension and claims agent, and he had given up dentistry. In addition, he received compensation for managing minors and mentally ill people's finances as a guardian appointed by the court. Although he didn't make much money from these ventures, they gave his wife more opportunities and helped the family get by. His name became well-known in the small town of Washington, D.C., and hers as well. She studied court and administrative procedures by copying and filing clients' documents. He made the necessary connections to win letters of guardianship from court. After securing a place for himself, he introduced his wife to officials, and by 1873, she was also earning fees as a court-appointed guardian. Oh, nice. Yeah. As an agent, Ezekiel also pursued land and treaty claims on behalf of Native American clients. This work opened yet another area of law to his wife. And I'm like, these are really good people. You know, I mean, they're like yeah, trying I mean, to help the Native Americans and stuff. He sounds like he's a good man ahead of his times, you know. Well, Belva's practice was run by the Lockwoods from their quarters in Union League Hall in downtown Washington until 1875. She said she was quoted as saying, living there gave me a basic yet practical and affordable place to call home and work. The Union League was close to the buildings housing the District of Columbia courts and the federal offices where the Lockwoods filed documents for their clients. One of these was the local police court, which met three blocks from their apartment 
from their apartments at an old Unitarian church in the junction of D and 6th Streets Northwest. This is where those who were familiar with Belva as an activist initially assessed her as a young lawyer. Police court proceedings provided the colorful twist of the often sleepy capital city. People would congregate at the former church building early in the mornings in anticipation of the start of the session. There are many arrests made with 200-person police force, 12,000 in 1873 Jeez. arrests. Holy shit. Under his leadership, Judge William B. Snell heard instances involving intoxication, theft, fighting, and profanity. Perhaps because he welcomed her presence, Belva had no hesitations about walking into Snell's courtroom, even though it was the last place he expected to find a proper middle-class woman. Oh. She had made her professional debut in front of him in September of 1871 while she was still a law student. A law student when she successfully argued for a reduction of sentence for a friend who had been accused of intoxication. Bella's surviving daughter, Laura McNeil, McNall, sorry, advertised her mother's apparent success in her Lockport Daily Journal news column in 1873 by writing, The lady lawyer of Washington has quite an extensive practice and a branch business and a, and a lady partner in Baltimore. She was able to do this because minor police cases, probate work, and pension claims brought in enough business. With her mother having taught her a lot about political relations, Laura stated two months later that the success now seems beyond controversy as her office is daily and hourly filled with clients. So the timeline is weird. I swear you said 1880-something, and then you said 1973. Did I say 19? Nothing 19. I mean, sorry, 1873. Well, it kind of bounces around about her law stuff here. Okay. Um, 1873 and then 1875. Yeah, it kind of bounces around a little bit. I tried to keep it in order, but then it was like talking. It was like going kind of down a rabbit hole. About yeah, one thing, okay. So I, it, That's fine. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that you had the dates right. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> Not that you'd uh, say the see, wrong thing. I? Surviving daughter Laura with her mother having taught herself. Okay. Okay. With her mother having taught her a lot about public relations, Laura stated two months later that this success now seems beyond controversy as her office is daily filled with our daily and hourly filled with clients. In spite of in spite of everything, Belva became a successful solo practitioner. The Lockwood Law Practice served a diverse clientele of laborers, painters, maids, businessmen, veter businessmen, veterans, and small real estate owners. The fact that Belva's clients were primarily working class people surely contributed to her success, which I think is so cool because nobody was helping them back then. Yeah. As a woman, she would not have been able, according to female colleague, to create an extensive acquaintance among businessmen in an easy, offhanded way as male attorneys make it in clubs, businesses, and public places. Yeah, right. However, if she was refused access to these male networks, she had other options and definitely exploited them to find clients. She represented people throughout the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia, and was always willing to travel considerable distances. In August of 1874, the Washington Evening Star reported that she had legal business in, in the Southwest. Miss Lockwood, the paper said, the lawyeress leaves for Texas tomorrow to be absent for some 40 days for the purpose of settling the estate of the judge John C. 
uh, waitress, uh, let's see, Wateris, Wateris in that state, who died some two months ago in Baltimore. Judge Wateris was a significant landowner in southwest Texas. Initially, after being admitted to the district bar in September of 1873, she took cases that brought her before the District of Columbia Supreme Court. According to scholar Jeffrey Morris, Congress established this court as an unusual hybrid that was given a majority of the trial appellate authority of the other federal courts, not of the, of other federal courts, while also hearing criminal and civil cases that would otherwise be heard by the state and municipal courts in the United States. Her first year of professional practice, she appeared almost exclusively as a plaintiff's attorney in the law equity division of this court a trend that continued to some extent from 1874 to 1885. Between 1873 and 1885, she was listed as an attorney in 100 equity court hearings. And an equity court hearing, just in case you don't know, uh, you know, equity is ensuring all people have access to the same opportunities, resources, really? and treatment. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> and she was also at 75 law division postings include, included her name. After her courtroom equity work in, I'm sorry, half of her courtroom equity work involved divorce proceedings. And what does equity mean? It means you can fucking <laughs> suck my finger. As a woman attorney, she drew female clients and represented wives and wage. I don't know why I can't talk. As a woman attorney, she drew female clients and represented wives as complainants against defendant husbands. When she represented men in divorce proceedings, they were always complainants, not defendants. Following divorce actions, her most frequently, her most frequent equity work included injunction processes, lunatic commitments, and land partition efforts. Much of her civil legal work did not take her to court and was not documented in docket books. But like the other storefront lawyers of her day, Belva worked up uncounted numbers of bills of sale and deeds and wills. After the Civil War era of women working in criminal courts, after the Civil War idea of women working in criminal courts, repugnant, even repulsive. What? That didn't make make sense. (laughs) After the Civil War, the idea of working women in criminal courts was women working (laughs) after the civil war the idea of women working in criminal courts was repugnant even repulsive there you go you got it society's morally disgusting dramas were played out in criminal court which was off limits to women we love that fragile rose they fragile we love it though yeah we do Belva may have declined criminal cases. Despite her religious beliefs and middle-class goals, she found criminal cases and court arguments to just be as acceptable as, as any other type of legal work. It is not difficult to imagine this no-nonsense no woman standing before the court in a room full of individuals, many of whom are down on their luck and have been charged with intoxication or simple assault. It is therefore not difficult to understand why the poor and unfortunate had to accept representation from an inexperienced lady lawyer. Oh. But Belva attracted attention and had a fast mind and a fast tongue. She said, I'll whip you with my tongue. <laughs> In 1875, she was attracted 
she was attracting clients charged with more serious crimes, crimes, which took her before the criminal division judges of the D.C. Supreme Court. (laughs) (laughs) If you guys listen to LGTC, let's go to court. You know what that was about. Just me being silly. From 1875 to 1885, Belva defended at least 69 criminal defendants in this courtroom. They were charged with nearly every type of crime, including mail fraud, forgery, burglary, and murder. She obtained... Murder? Murder, I say. She obtained not guilty verdicts in 15 jury trials and pleaded guilty in nine. 31 of her clients were found guilty as charged, with five others convicted of a lesser offense. Four cases were resolved with a null prosecute. I can't pronounce that word. I meant to look it up and I forgot. Which is a prosecutor's secession of proceedings. What is it? That is, it stops the case and is an indefinite adjournment, not an acquittal. What's the word? I know how to say it. This terminates. This terminates the proceedings, it. but it does not operate as a bar of discharge or acquittal on the merits. Why are you ignoring me? So the defendant <laughs> can be indicted again. The power is not subject to any control by the courts. I was trying to finish my fucking definition. <laughs> it's N-O-L-L-E. Noel? N-O-L-L-E. I think it's Noel. Noel, okay. P-R-O-S. Pros. E-Q-U-I. It's a it's a Latin word, so. Prosecute, prosecute. Oh yeah, it must be the same as prosecution. I don't know. Prostitute. Anyway, prostitute. That's what it is. She obtained retri- retrials for several others. She handled the majority of these cases on her own, with only the occasional male co-counsel. In 1875, the Lockwood family moved into a house at 512 10th Street, a block from the League Building and two doors down from the residence where the gravely wounded Abraham Lincoln was (gasps) transported from Ford Theater. Oh, my God, Abe. Good old Abe. I love Abe. Do you like Abe? I mean, he's okay. What? I mean, he's okay. Well, he's not alive, so he's not okay. He's dead, Lynn. Is he? He's dead. Oh. Um, I thought that he was still here. (laughs) She did business in one or two of these rooms with Laura and Ezekiel close by. Despite becoming a frailer, her husband continued to work as a notary public. His name and seal appear on a number of legal documents submitted by his wife up until the month of his death in 1877. I thought you weren't allowed, maybe now, but back then you were. You're not allowed to. I don't think as a notary you're allowed to do it for like immediately. Oh, I'm sure back then they didn't care. You can't now, yeah. Belva's husband, husband's health declined quickly, making her the main provider. Ezekiel Lockwood died in April 25th, 1877. But he was a lot older than her, right? Yeah, he was older than her. But Jesus, man, she's gone through two husbands now and a kid. Her kid died? Yeah, her second daughter. Oh, yeah, yeah, the baby. Yeah. The widow- I was like, why did I wasn't listening to that? I didn't hear that. <laughs> the widow wept but did not go into serious grief. Five days after his death, she went to her desk writing a letter to repair an error to the assessment of a client's taxes. Three months later, she bought the house where they had been residing, the property at 619 F Street Northwest, which one visitor characterized as a very fine house. Cost slightly more than $13,000. Could you imagine? Belva purchased the F Street. How much is that now? I don't know. Why don't you Google it? Oh, my God. Belva purchased the F Street house as a symbol of her new, solid, middle-class professional standing. 
Visitors were impressed by the 20-room mansion, 20-room mansion, despite its lack of ostentation. Miss E.N. Chaplin wrote in American Court Gossip that the lady lawyer's brick home featured well-furnished parlors. It's so funny how the papers would publish this stuff. With several good paintings to add to their tribute to the lady's taste. It was definitely a risk. It was definitely a risk proposition given the high mortgage. However, the transaction made solid business sense. The structure would serve as a resident residence boarding house, office, and long-term investment. She would use the property as collateral for loans and commercial transactions. Belva's daughter, Laura, and niece, Clara, lived there as her legal assistant, served as her legal assistants and lived there. Oh, that would be 379000 today. That doesn't seem like... Not in downtown D.C., sorry. No, just the 13000 That's how much it is now. What? $13,000 in 1877 is now worth $379,000. Yeah, but property in D.C., it's probably double that. Or well, triple. yeah, but we're not, we're just saying, like, yeah, that's how general. much it would have cost, yeah. $379,000. But, and there's no way you could buy a house there now for in that price. In downtown D.C.? Yeah. No. Laura's life was deeply intertwined. Can't even buy a house here for that. Yeah. Laura's life was deeply Deeply entwined with her mother, she and her husband, DeForest Payson Orms, lived on F Street, and she died at the age of 44. Laura began clerking for Belva in 1873, one of several women, and died and at least one man who worked or studied with Belva for varying lengths of time throughout the 1870s and 1880s. Belva occasionally coupled her legal practice with the boarding house. So this house is like she people were in and out of it living in it. She had family there. It's like all kinds of people in her house. Out. Yeah. Okay. In the summer of 18 cuz it was 20 room house. Yeah, that's crazy. In the summer of 1877, veteran James Kelly came to her law office seeking assistance with pension and a bounty claim. Kelly had been in the army mm-hmm. since 1850, traveling throughout the country. His wife had died and he had recently set sent for his daughters who had been put in California had been put in California with Catholic nuns. That's weird. Had been put in. The girls, Elizabeth and Rebecca, traveled east only to see their father's mental and physical... Their father's mental mental and physical decline by 1870... Oh, my God. The girls, Elizabeth and Rebecca, traveled east only to see their father's mental, mental and physical decline. By 1879, he needed care at the soldier's home. And in February 1880, Kelly was... A judged a lunatic. <gasps> Just like you, Rose. <laughs> a month later, the court nominated Belva as the committee of the commit the committee of the estate, granting her the authority to collect and receive the pension money owed to him by the government. She was tasked with providing him for as well as caring for his two daughters. So now she's like got two kids. Even before her position as the guardian, James had urged Belva to keep an eye on the Kelly daughters and keep them out of trouble. Ooh. Rebecca came on F Street in January 1880 and was characterized as a 16-year-old in court documents. Belva denied this, claiming that the two girls came to her in short clothes and had not matured as women. Belva later later labeled Rebecca as weak-minded. In exchange for housing and board, her father's account was charged $6 a month, and the child did occasional housework until 1883 when she went into the service in Maine. 
Clara, her niece, later testified that Rebecca had never cons- had Rebecca never had consistent work and couldn't be relied on. Rebecca's older sister, Elizabeth, presented a more difficult situation. She too resided on F Street. Belva stated in court that she was too Belva stated in court that she was too imbecile for self-support. She needed continual supervision to keep her from vagrancy and attracting unwanted guys. Neither of the girls won the hearts of anyone on the F Street home. That's what's happening with Lynn right now. Yeah. I'm trying to get her under some kind of conservatorship so she'll stop attracting the unwanted attention. Me and Brittany. Clara, (laughs) who was adopted by her aunt and relied on her for a home, expressed frustration that Belva would always put up with the girls, defend and protect them because they had nowhere else to go, quite the discomfort of other members of the family. In reality, Clara said that her aunt lost borders who were unwilling to put up with the girls' poor behavior. So people were, like, leaving the boarding house, like, fuck this, I'm out of here. These two girls are nuts. She was losing money. When Cherokee James Taylor's children were placed in Belva's care, they provided... They proved to be more manageable. Taylor was a lobbyist for the Eastern Band of Cherokee, first encountered the Lockwoods in 1875 at the 10th Street boarding house where Miss Lockwood developed Taylor into a legal client. He offered her his personal legal business while they discussed the more serious issue of Eastern Cherokee who were negotiating for legal recognition and the ability to make monetary treaty-based claims with the U.S. government. Taylor, like James Kelly, discovered that the lady lawyer might assist him with personal issues while also handling his legal matters. Like Kelly, his problems involved youngsters who required attention. Taylor traveled frequently to Washington and occasionally boarded at F Street. During one of these visits, he asked Belva to supervise two of his many children. You know, Belva's like, God damn, more kids. She agreed and took John and Dora Taylor in the early 1880s, often for several months at a time. She charged the... <laughs> what the fuck? I know. She well, charged, can you watch my kids for yeah. a couple months? She charged the old Taylor $15 per month for John, who took no meals, and $20 for Dora's lodging and board. She oversaw their education, purchased their clothing, clothing, and when it came time for them to leave Washington, she arranged for their trip to Indian Territory. Territory. Belva's lively household was located in the heart of downtown Washington, which was neither peaceful nor stylish. (laughs) It's it's the same way now. Um, But more importantly, Belva valued the convenience with which she could access local courts as well as federal offices and chambers as she grew her claims, patent, and pension practice. Until June of 1879, the United States Court claims the court uh, where individuals can file against the government, was located 12 rooms up the hill from her house in the Capitol's basement. 12 rooms? It was located 12 rooms up. That's what it says, from her house. Hmm. I don't know. That year, <laughs> the court moved to 1509 Pennsylvania Avenue, not far from her. The F Street home was across the street from the Patent Office, which, was also, which also housed the Bureau of Indian Affairs, with whom Belva did business. Perhaps most fortunate for the Lockwood Law Practice was the sec- selection of a site for the new pension building, which was finished in 1887, just one block from her home. The 600 block of F Street was a hotbed of legal activity. Whoop, whoop. 
The Washington Law Reporter, Washington's legal trade newspaper, was based at 16, I'm sorry, at 633 F Street Northwest, Northwest, and several attorneys maintained offices there. They, like Belleville, wanted to be close to the federal government buildings and the district courthouse. Belva startled Washingtonians by 1881 by purchasing an adult bike, like a tricycle, oh like the God. big ones, which they considered was immodest for a woman. People were aghast, Rose. I bet they were. She was not humble. She was a realistic 51-year-old who enjoyed health and was ease with modern technologies and was not afraid of notoriety. With stubborn determination, she picked up the tricycle, making herself a fair sport for journalists. You know the journalists were going crazy. Oh, my God. She commuted several kilometers every day to government departments with the Capitol and courts. Cycles were called freedom machines. Belva purchased hers after noticing that the male attorneys who used them finishing their jobs faster. faster. So she, like, saw all the male, like, attorneys on her street, like, going, riding these bikes and getting, like, to A and B so much faster and getting stuff done. And she was like, what the fuck? I'm doing that. Yeah, so that didn't go over so well. Is it because she was wearing a skirt? That's why it's immodest. Probably. Um, Belva practiced law in the same way that Washington males do, do with modest street level companies. Her days were filled with clients, paperwork and court appearances. A major portion of her portion of her early civil cases was the collection of debts from loans made or money owed for business activities. Clients suing for divorce were also a part of her profession. In March of 1874, Laura wrote in her weekly column that the divorce industry was becoming very lively with Washington likely to rival Chicago with this branch of the tree. She was referring to the rising number of divorce petitions as well as the recent tense case in which her mother outwitted Frederick Foker, a postal employee who was going to leave California to avoid paying her client's court-ordered alimony. (gasps) So the, her client came to her and was like, I, he's, he's going to leave without yeah. paying alimony. So she said, you, like, hell he is. That's what she said. Using a detective and application for a writ of exit regno. <laughs> regno. It's, it means to restrain a person from leaving the kingdom. Belva, described by Laura as the lynx-eyed attorney, <laughs> brought to court evidence of Foker's unwillingness to pay an intended flight. The writ was issued, and the mayor, do well, was ordered to pay alimony and fees or face time in jail. Oh. As a woman, Belva was always concerned about the image and her image and utilized delicate types of humor to soften public's perception of her or to get a favor. When Lieben's Stockbridge sued her for $847, which he claimed he had placed in her hands as a trustee, She reprimanded him in a 53-line rhyming poem, pleading with the court for mercy. And here's the poem. (laughs) O O cruel creditor thus to sue for money charged as overdue, and go into the court and swear to things as light as an empty air, and strive to get a judgment sum before the day of judgment come. You know I'll pay that little bit, just as you fixed it in your will. That, what? You know I'd pay that little bill just as you fixed it in your will. Oh, okay. I think I left that one You said out. bit instead of bill. Oh, okay. <laughs> she argued that Stockbridge had given her money to hold, certain, to hold for certain people to whom she meant to leave it by will, but told the court that she would execute the trust. Most of the time she was 
she was more reserved. Male attorneys in Washington regarded her as the proper colleague, and they shared casework. On one of these partnerships, Kaiser versus Stickney, gave her the opportunity to make her first oral argument for the United States Supreme Court, a small but historic appearance that marked the first time a female member of the bar engaged in debate. Oh, in November 30th and December 1st, 1880, 1880, a court heard Kaiser's appeal from the Supreme Court of the District of Columbia. Belva was identified as counsel alongside Mike L. Woods. The lawsuit concern, concerned the execution of a deed that bound local property to pay debt. Belva had been representing Caroline Kaiser, the, the appellate, since 1875, with some irony, she attempted to utilize the much-criticized D.C. married woman's property laws to her client's benefit, contending that Kaiser, as a married woman, could not legally be party to a contract encumbering her own property. The strategy failed, and Kaiser was appealed to the United States Supreme Court, which, due to the district's unique position, considering appeals from the D.C. Supreme Court. Belva became the first woman to join the high court bar 20 months prior. She now stood beside Woods, who gave their presentation with the identical reasoning that they had used before the D.C. court. He and Justice William Strong got into a heated debate over the law. According to the Evening, Evening Star, which ran the, front story, ran the story front page, Belva rose at the end of the discussion and requested to be heard. The justices agreed, and she spoke for 20 minutes, sharing her perspective on the case while losing the appeal, making history. She said, I have been now 14 years before the bar in almost continuous practice, and my experience has been large, often serious, and many times amusing. I have never lacked, I've never lacked plenty of good paying work, but while I have supported my family well, I have not grown rich. In business, I have been patient, painstaking, and indefat indefatigable. There is no class of case that comes before the court that I have not ventured to try, either civil, equitable, or criminal, and my clients have been as largely men as women. There is a good opening at the bar for the class of women who have a taste and attacked for it. Belva Lockwood, 1888. Uh -huh. In the docket books, if the docket books are to be believed, Belva retired from courtroom practice in the mid-1880s she did not turn down civil and criminal trial works. Several dramatic cases were her future, were her future, but either the money was insufficient or increasingly long trips as a public lecturer. A second job she pursued after her first presidential campaign made it impossible to find clients. In lieu of trial work, Belva expanded her pension and bounty claims company with Laura and Clara handling much of the documentation. Belva later reported that the office handled 7,000 pension cases between 1870s and the 1890s. Wow. <clears throat> this was a respectable figure. Though minor in compared to pension claims, Baron George E. Lemon, who informed members of Congress that his law firm had handled 50,000 files and appeals in the 15 oh. years following the Civil War alone... In her 70s and 80s, Belva balanced a legal career with lecture travels and increasing responsibilities as a member of the Universal Peace Union, a small pacifist group. So in 70s and 80s, she's still practicing. That's pretty right? impressive yeah. back then. Like that, 70s and 80s then, now yeah. is not 
But back then, holy shit, she represented the Eastern Cherokee in a multi-party appeal before the United States Supreme Court in 1906. This time, unlike in Kaiser, in unlike in Kaiser, she won the case and her clients received a multi-million dollar payout. Oh, awesome. In 1912, she took the final significant case of her career, successfully representing Miss Mary G. I'm sorry, Mary E. Gage, in lunacy hearings before a jury, following allegations that Gage had threatened to kill prominent Washington banker Charles J. Bell. Belva, an energetic woman, took a group of women on a tour of Europe when she was 83 years old. Holy shit. Until her dying illness, she marched on the streets of the capital in support of women's suffrage and international peace. She died in Washington, D.C. in 1917 at the age of 86. Before she died, she told a reporter that, that a woman could one day occupy the White House, but she quoted as saying, it will be entirely on her own merits. However, no movement can position her there solely because she's female. Yeah. Um, So there's a couple, like, other little tidbits of information. I didn't have anywhere to really put them, but she had successfully pushed for legislation to allow qualified women lawyers to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court and had twice been the Equal Rights Party's presidential nominee by the end of the 19th century, making her one of the most well-known women in the country. And she's not in the history books. Also... In one criminal case, Belva was acting as a defense attorney, this is hysterical, for a woman who had shot a police officer. The defendant confessed to her actions on the stand to Belva's dismay. She was like, fuck. (laughs) Now she had to defend someone who had already admitted to the crime, a seemingly impossible task. But Belva knew something important. The woman's husband had told her to do it. Belva explained to the jury that the woman's husband had done something that put him in fear of the law enforcement leading him to instruct his wife to load the gun and shoot the first officer that tried to force his way into the house. Belva argued that since 19th century common law legally obligated a wife to obey her spouse, the husband had, in effect, actually been the one to shoot the police officer. (laughs) Yeah, use it against them, assholes. The wife was simply his instrument for performing the violence. Right. You would not have a woman resist her husband... Belva asked rhetorically as she urged the court to bring the husband from out of state and try him from the crime instead. (laughs) The jury found her argument convincing and pronounced her client not guilty. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I was like, I didn't know where to put that in the story, but I was like, I have to read this. So, yeah. That's That's how smart she was. Like a quick tongue and stuff. She like could come up with the stuff like that. I like that. She... Yeah, she, like, turned it around on them. Totally. She's like, oh, but a woman has to obey her husband. So here you go. (laughs) She was Shazam. just obeying. Yes. That's I'm... awesome. Isn't she cool? Yeah. she And for once, it's like she didn't have anything, like, bad in her past. Like, well, no. at least not, nothing you've no, said or found. No, I didn't find found. anything. She was just totally a badass. Yeah. And, you know, it's like. <laughs> Usually it's like, you know, they beat their kids or they hate their kids uh, yeah. or something. Well, or... one of the things that just gets me is that, you know, all these amazing women that have fought for all this stuff for us. And I feel like, are they, like, turning in their grave right now while we're dealing with the same bullshit that they fought for us not to deal with? Oh, I'm sure. Like, it's horrible. Like, we've come so far, but yet we haven't, you know? No, it's absolutely ridiculous that we have, that, you know, we're dealing with, you know, these governments that want to, you know... Like, we're going backwards. Yeah, Yeah. that want to make decisions for our health care. And also, like, this whole thing of Florida where they're talking about tracking young girls' periods from the time they're born. Are they? Yes! I'm like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, there's some crazy shit. 
It, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, I could be totally wrong, y'all. And if I am, let me know. I don't care. I mean, you know, I'm, I'll, 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 bite, I'll uh, retract what I said. But it's something about, like, um, de- deterring transgender or, like, you know, people, like, oh, changing sex. that wouldn't surprise me. But you, yeah. you also read some crazy shit. No, it's – I heard it on um, – <laughs> There was something I read today that I, was – I like want to say I heard it on one of my podcasts. There was like a news on, like, headline. Like or something. Um, there was a news headline I read today that I was like, what? It's just – I just <coughs> – I can't even with people these days. I know. Well, I mean – What are we doing? Well, the whole the, – the, the court case that Trump's in right now, that woman. I mean, the judge is – Oh my God! The judge hates him so. Oh, much. I know. I well, because he saw won't that. shut up. Yeah, he won't shut up, and the judge is like, "Dude, I mean, he's just digging himself a grave." That's well, all and he's doing. he he just thinks he's God's above, gift yeah. to Earth. Yeah, he and he's, he's above, above everyone. He can yeah. he doesn't need to follow any of the rules. Yep, you're right. And, and the judge is like, "No, in my court, you have to follow my rules and stop being a dick." And he keeps like talking out, and the judge is like, "Oh my God, it's ugly." But I don't know the woman, that poor woman. I give her so many kudos for standing yeah. up to him because you know he's made oh. her life a living oh, fucking hell. I can't even imagine. He's made her life a living hell. I can't imagine trying to like sue him or anything. And he was like, she's not my type. She's ugly. But then he misidentified her as his ex-wife. <laughs> that was funny. That was really funny. I'm like, you are the dumbest man in the world. But I mean, yeah. he truly is. Yeah. I just I don't understand all the Trump love. It scares me. You know, the Iowa caucus so I don't ever watch that stuff. I don't ever watch news or anything. But while I'm writing my story, I tend to watch stuff that's like mindless. And yeah. I was trying to watch earlier in the week. I was trying to watch the weather because I was like, we had this oh, big storm snow, coming. Yeah, and I was like, snow. I really need to know what's going on. And um, so I was watching the weather while I was working on my story. And then um, the thing about the Iowa caucus came on next. And they were saying how I won. And I'm like, I'm terrified. I'm totally terrified. Uh, I, it is terrifying. Like, what the? F- I don't understand. I I, I don't, Lynn. I I, I don't even understand. Like, who who are these people? I I mean, I do know some of them because, and it's clear yeah. that they are brainless. But but it's it's so scary that you know he has all these criminal charges and all these things going on, and people, people don't care. Still, they don't care, and they're like a lot of like a lot of like, like Christians. Like, well, these are the same people that were like wanted to crucify Bill Clinton for sleeping with Monica, right? But yet, and the stuff that Trump is doing is it's way worse, ten times worse. And these are the people like trying to take away. Oh, I know what the headline was. It was some like senator or a governor or something somewhere, a woman. Um, who had voted um, against some kind of transgender bill or something, was voting to allow children to work, um, to drop out of school and work starting at the age of 14. Oh, I saw that. Did you that. see that? It was like a CNN alert. I saw something about that. And I and I clicked it and read the, the um, it was a short article. But I was like, yeah, she, she once kids to be able to drop out of school at 14 and work 40 hours a week on not just their family's farm, but also on like corporate farms. And I'm like, are, are we like going back to child labor? Like, like what, what the doing? fuck is happening? It's like the next step is slavery. Right. Right. I mean, it's I'm serious. Like, what is it's happening? Absolutely terrifying. Why do you think that's OK? But allowing you think a 14 year old can choose to work? 
40 a, hours a, a week, but they can't. A 26-year-old can't make, like, life-determining decisions. Right. You expect a 14-year-old to? But yet they can't make a decision about how they feel about their own sex? Right. Oh, my God. Don't even get it's me started. Like, <laughs> it infuriates It's mind-boggling. Me. Oh, my God. So if you like that, you guys. <laughs> but, um, yeah, if you, if you guys like that, give us a, a follow on our social media, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at No Ordinary Women Pod. And on the X at no ord, O-R-D, women pod. Just an FYI, I don't post on there very often. I try to, and I forget because I'm never on there because it makes me a little cuckoo, all the stuff that's on there. Um, but most of the stuff we post is, um, I post is on Instagram and Facebook. So um, slide into our DMs, suggest people that you'd like to hear us do a story on, and just tell us how great we are. And that's all. Until next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.